bet will sound familiar to many. I want you to picture piles of boxes and, uh, and maybe more than a few box cutters, you know, maybe some, maybe some bubble wrap, um, maybe some furniture pads, some, you, some, some dollies, some, some tie downs. Is that conjuring up an image of anything for you? Like, like maybe moving? Yeah, I think I heard somebody say moving. Man, oh man, right? Like all the things that it takes to pull off a move. Did you know um, that there are like so many people, like 40 million Americans move every year? That's a lot, right? Uh, so since we were here two years ago, has anyone moved in the last two years? Yeah, several hands. Anybody planning to move still this calendar year probably? Yeah? All right, so... <laughs> They're moving far, far away. They've had it. They're, <laughs> I mean, so you guys can relate, right? Now, the thing is, when you move, there are so many different reasons why a person might move. Sometimes you move by choice. Sometimes it's not by choice. I mean, sometimes you move because, well, sometimes you move because of a death or a divorce. You know, sometimes you move because something unforeseen, maybe even unwanted, has been introduced into your life but whether your move is one that you chose or whether it's one that you would never have chosen for yourself there's no doubt that it results in lots and lots of relocation stress let's turn in our bibles to daniel chapter one did you know that the bible is filled with stories about people who moved filled with stories about relocations When you think about it, from one end of the Bible to the other, people were moving. I mean, Genesis begins with Adam and Eve getting evicted from the garden. And Revelation basically ends with us getting a new heaven and a new earth to live in, right? So from cover to cover, the Bible is all about moves. It's all about relocations. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, you know, that's great, but I'm not one of those people who's about to move, so I don't really know how this is going to apply to me. Well... What, what Daniel, Daniel is one of those people who, you know, experienced relocation. What Daniel and others experienced in their relocation was transformation. They learned that there could be transformation in relocation. So what we want to do is we want to take relocation as a metaphor, a metaphor for change. So that even if you're not geographically moving from one place to another, life is filled with change. Things are always changing. Things are always transitioning. The way things are now aren't the way they always were. And they're not the way things will always be. So we too want to know how to experience transformation and relocation. So again, Daniel's an example of that, relocating from Judah to Babylon. Let's have a quick prayer and then dive into Daniel 1. Lord, we do pray one last time before starting the Bible study and just ask that it would be your Holy Spirit that would speak to our hearts. Lord, we've been singing together, we've been praying together, and now we're going to read and study together, but it's your voice that we want to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first, let's talk about Daniel at the food court. Daniel 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles 
young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, just to put this on a timeline, this is like six centuries before Christ. So, whereas we understand ourselves to be like 2,000 years this side of the cross, they're like 600 years that side of the cross. And we know um, by comparing the text of the Bible with extra-biblical sources that this was actually one of three attacks that Nebuchadnezzar made against Jerusalem. Uh, This is actually the first of those three attacks. Each time Nebuchadnezzar not only besieged the city, but he took captives. And uh, and so that brings us to what we've read here. Uh, In this first attack, among those taken was King Jehoiakim. Now, he wouldn't be gone long. In fact, in just a short time, he would be returned to the land where he would be set up to reign as a puppet king. Um, But he was not alone. There were others who were taken. You guys remember when you were in school, middle school, high school, how you'd get an annual at the end of the year, a yearbook, we called it sometimes. And, uh, and in the yearbook would be all kinds of cool things, you know, your, your school photo for the year, a class picture maybe, um, pictures taken at events throughout the year. And sometimes there would be these surveys, right? Like they would vote who's most likely to succeed, things like that. So, um, you know, it was always fun to read, right, to see if you would turn up. I've got a pastor friend who was voted most likely to go to hell, which is ironic since he now helps people not go there for a living. If it hurt his feelings, the pain didn't last long because he discovered that in the same survey, his brother had been voted most likely to marry outside the species. So somehow he found that comforting that he got what he did, but his brother got what he did. Nebuchadnezzar was looking for those teens who were voted most likely to succeed. It's described in verses 3 and 4. They were to be physically and mentally fit. Now, you notice that reference to master of eunuchs. I just want to talk about that really, really briefly. If you're like me, you know people who don't take the Bible seriously. And some of them will tell you that the reason is that it's filled with contradictions and things like that. The next time somebody tells you that, I suggest you hand them your Bible and ask them to show you one. 99 times in 100, they have no idea where to turn. And the one time in 100 that they do know where to turn, because there are some difficult passages. But if you will then go and do a little bit of homework, you'll be able to come back with a really thoughtful, well-reasoned response. But so they say things like contradictions, or they say that it's filled with, you know, pre-scientific errors, or even historical inaccuracies, things of that nature. And for the longest time, critics of the Bible pointed to this. They said there was no evidence that there had ever been any such role in Babylon, any such office as master of eunuchs, until archaeologists found this clay tablet. And on the clay tablet, there was a reference to the Rabsaris, master eunuch. So today, if you were to visit the British Museum, you could actually see this clay tablet with your own eyes. Um, Again, just one of so many reasons that we take the Bible seriously. But Nebuchadnezzar had this three-year conditioning program in mind for these guys, right? He wanted to reprogram their minds. He wanted to change their thoughts and their beliefs. And he began with their education. Look at verse 4. Notice the reference there to language and literature. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always admired people who can speak more than one language. My wife, Miranda, is bilingual. She was born to American missionaries in Italy. 
So she spoke Italian before she ever spoke English, lived in Italy until she was eight years old, and at one point in her career even recorded an album in Italian and did a tour of Italy. How cool is that? I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, me, I'm still kind of wrestling with English, you know, just trying to, trying to get that down. I've still got some, some work to do, I think, on that. I remember when my eldest daughter, Lauren, was in high school, um, I was meeting her teachers at the beginning of the semester, and I was sitting in her Spanish class where the teacher had just given a short presentation and opened it up for questions. It's so awkward. You know, one of those situations where it's crickets, so they, you know, they prod again, crickets, they prod again, crickets, and then they give up. Well, I had a question, and I totally should have asked this guy just to help him out. You know, I should have thrown him a bone just to give him something. But the thing that I was wondering but didn't ask was why after two years of high school Spanish, all I can remember is tu estas loco. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. That can come in handy from time to time. But I got a B. You'd think I'd remember more than that, right? Well, the Babylonians were super educated. We know that they knew lots about astronomy and about mathematics. And so it's cool that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to educate these guys. But more than that, he wanted to move them away from the Bible. The Bible was the book that told them who they were. The Bible was the book that told them what it meant for them to have a relationship with God. It's the book that told them what it meant that they were part of this, this group of people that God had chosen uniquely through, through whom to bless the world. This book would even explain to them why they were in captivity and give them an idea how long the captivity might last. Nebuchadnezzar did not want them in the Bible, so he was replacing it. Now, not only their education, but he also wanted to tackle their culture. Notice in verse 5 the reference to delicacies and wine. To these teenage boys, Babylon must have seemed like a food court. Has anybody ever raised teenagers? Yeah, so I've, you know, I've got one that was a teenager, one that is soon to be a teenager. It's hard to keep food in the house with teenagers, right? And especially those of you that had more than one teen at a time. And maybe especially if you had a bunch of teenage boys. Like five minutes after you get back from the grocery store, the pantry and fridge are empty. How does this happen? There's like no reasonable explanation, right? So add to that, though, that these teen boys had been in a city under siege. One of the first things you would do if you sieged an, or besieged an ancient city is cut off their food supply. So these guys were starving, and they were far from home against their will. This must have just seemed like a food court that was presented to them there in Babylon, these delicacies, this wine. But no doubt they were conflicted. You see, we know that the Babylonians were super cultured. Archaeologists have found extraordinary objects of art and culture um, in their digs in that region. But again, culture is good. There's nothing wrong with culture. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just trying to enrich their lives. He was trying to move them away from their lifestyle. See, again, going back to the Bible, the Bible had dietary laws in it. There were things that these guys were not to eat and things that they were to eat. And so for them, there was this conflict. Like, is the food that I'm being served kosher? Is it not kosher? So think of it. If you were Daniel or one of his friends, you would be reminded about God every single time you had a meal based on what was put in front of you or what wasn't put in front of you or how what was put in front of you was prepared. You'd be reminded of God. You'd think about God. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them thinking about God. So again, he's trying to move them away from the Bible. He's trying to move them away from their lifestyle. And the next thing, after attacking their education and their culture, he wants to go straight for their religion. Look at verse 6. Notice the reference to new 
names. I have to say, Chris, I was so impressed during the announcements. Like, everybody who raised their hand, you knew their name. Like, that is remarkable. Like, I think, I think Calvary Chapels all over the world should know that you knew every single name. I mean, that's, like, amazing. But speaking of names, have you ever, have you ever heard, like, a celebrity name, their kid something, and wondered what in the world was going through their mind? Like, sometimes the name itself is just bizarre, and other times it's, it's not that the first name is weird or the last name is weird, but that first name coupled with that last name is so weird. And you just wonder, you know, you meet somebody and you think, like, how drunk were your parents when they named you? Like, how does this, how does that name wind up on a birth certificate? Maybe you've even thought about changing your own name. I've never been a big fan of my name. You know, my last name is Rig. And you know how kids are. It didn't take long at all before grade school kids figured out that rig rhymes with pig. So I quickly became rig pig. And then, just to make their life easier, I guess, they shortened it to pig. On top of that, because people cannot help themselves, like there's this gravitational pull to add an S to my name. In their minds, it couldn't possibly be rig. It has to be rigs. So pig inevitably became pigs. So I'd be walking down the hall, you know, and somebody would see me from their locker and be like, hey, pigs, what's up, pigs? I hated that. I was never, never like a huge fan of that. I, I thought to myself, maybe there's a way I could redeem that. You know, maybe there's a way I could make the name Rig cool. I thought for sure that if I ever had a son, I would name him Big. Because <laughs> Big Rig would be the coolest boy's name ever. Am I wrong? I mean, it would be so cool. Well, I never did have a son. I've got two amazing daughters. I never did have a son, so I never got to use that. You know, then, of course, there was my musical attempts in the 80s. I played in a Christian glam rock band in the 80s, and I thought that maybe I'd make a career of that, and and I imagined that after the band had, you know, run out of gas, then maybe I'd have a solo career. So I thought I would name my first solo album Rigamarole. (laughs) Sounds like rock and roll. And then I thought I'd call my second album Rigatoni, just because I could. And then when I was tired, just ready to hang it up, I'd record one last album, do one last tour. That last album would be called Rigor Mortis. It would be the perfect, be the perfect way to cap off my career. Well, the truth is I didn't even use the name Rig in Hollywood when, when we lived and played in the clubs there in Hollywood, California. I went by Alan Lee. And Lee is, you know, part of my middle name. My middle name is Leroy. I was named for my dad. I'm a junior. So he's Alan Leroy Riggs Sr. I'm Alan Leroy Riggs Jr. And I, I always hated the name Leroy. I'm so sorry if your name is Leroy. Please forgive me. I was a jerk. I was wrong. I had a bad attitude. But I did not like that name Leroy. I didn't want anyone to know that my name was Leroy, my middle name. And, of course, if they learned, then I'd be Leroy Pigs forever. Would be. So, But, you know, I got to spend some time with my grandmother. She came to visit me in Austin um, when I was pastoring Calvary Chapel in Austin, Texas. She came to visit me, and I didn't know, although, of course, I couldn't be sure it wouldn't be. But, I mean, it ended up being the last time I saw her on this earth. I'll see her again someday. I know she's with the Lord. She was a strong believer. Can't wait to see her again. But I'm so grateful for that last visit. I got to ask her some questions, like what she was thinking when she named my dad Leroy. Like, why did she give him the middle name Leroy? And I was blown away to find out that he was named for her favorite uncle. She had an uncle, Leroy, who meant everything to her. And so she named him Leroy. Now, Leroy's last name was Lemon. Leroy Lemon. Man, that is a doozy. Like, if I was writing a book and naming characters, Leroy Lemon would be a great character name. But that softened my heart to know what that name meant to my grandmother. After she passed, I got to see some old family photos And I saw one family photo with Leroy in it, and it blew my mind. Because it was like five or six men, 
you know, all like ancestors of mine, like all related to me. And they were in a band. They're all standing there holding instruments. And there's Leroy holding an instrument. So now I'm like, how rock star is Leroy? Man, Leroy is like the coolest, most rock star name ever. It's funny how knowing something about a name changes the way that we think about it, right? So I'm not going to go into great detail. Chances are you've heard this taught many times before, and it's easy enough to open any Bible study um, you know, program online and check the meanings of the names. But all of their given names, their Hebrew names, spoke of the one true and living God. And all of the new names that they were given spoke of false gods worshipped in Babylon. So it's not just that they were getting you know, some cool new stage name kind of a thing, but instead... Again, just like Nebuchadnezzar tried to move them away from other meaningful things, so too he was trying to move them away from God. Think of it. If you're Daniel or one of his friends and your given name says something about God, then every single time someone calls your name, you're reminded about God. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want them thinking about the true and living God. So the thing is, we have an enemy too, don't we? We call him Satan, the devil, the evil one. And he has a conditioning program. Three years, we wish. I wish Satan had a three-year conditioning program. That dude is on top of his job 24-7, 365. Like, he doesn't even take a day off ever. He doesn't even stop for lunch. Like, every single day, he's after us year after year after year, trying trying to beat us down, trying to move us away from the Bible, trying to move us away from a better life, trying to move us away from God. So let me ask you, Before we move on to our second point, are you moving toward the Bible or away from it? Are you moving toward a better life or away from it? Are you moving toward God or are you moving away from him? Daniel at the food court. Now check it out. Now we're going to see Daniel in a food fight. Verse eight. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. Now, have you guys ever been in a food fight? I don't mean like at home with your siblings at the dinner table. I mean like with strangers in a public place. I've totally been in one of those. When I was in middle school, I was at lunch in the cafeteria. Me and my buddies were seated around a table and you know, of course, all the tables were full. It was so loud. You could barely hear your friend talking from across the table. But I'll tell you what I did here. I heard somebody who had put their hands to their mouth yell these two words, food fight. And the next thing you know, visibility dropped to zero. You guys have heard of the food pyramid, right? We were building it right in the middle of the cafeteria. And I'll never forget what happened next. This is terrible. I'm just going to tell you up front. I'm a bad person. I was a bad kid. This is, you're going you're gonna to think less of me. But, but me and my buddies, well, we had a name for one of the assistant principals. We called him Link because he looked like the missing Link. What I'm saying is he had a forehead that like went for days. I mean, like he would never have to wear a visor. It came as original equipment. Like you could put a ski lift on his head. I mean, it was unbelievable. So, so Link walks in in the middle of this food fight to try to stop it. And some kid launches a chocolate milkshake. 
I can still see that cup, man, spinning so tightly, that frozen treat's just tucked in there nice and neat until it hits Link right in the head. And then chocolate milkshake just running right off the end of that long, pale forehead. It was awesome. I remember very little of that school year. That I remember. That was like an academic highlight for me. Crazy, right? The food fight. So, so here these guys are in a food court. The people around them are downing the delicacies. They're washing it down with wine. And Daniel, of all people, puts his hands to his mouth and yells, food fight. Now, why? Why would Daniel want to fight about food? Well, notice in verse 8 twice that word defiled. It's possible that the food was not kosher. Remember, we said already that, that in the Old Testament, they had these dietary laws, right? In, in the books of Moses and the law, list of things to eat, list of things not to eat. So, so maybe some of the things they were served were on the not to eat list. But there's another possibility. It's likely that these foods have been dedicated to idols. If you're a student of the New Testament, you know that the first Christians struggled with this question. Um, most of the meat that they had access to had been dedicated to an idol before it was made available for sale. And so first century Christians wrestled with whether it was okay or not okay to eat that. And uh, what you may not know, though, is that that didn't just start in New Testament times. That wasn't like a new problem. That had been a problem for a long time for people of faith. So that may well have been a problem for Daniel and for his friends. Now, of course, we know from reading the New Testament what Paul had to say about that. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, Paul said it's all about conscience. I mean, basically, he argued that because the false god is a false god, it's not offered to anything at all. and There's no reason not to eat it. But again, he said it was about conscience. Can we talk about this for just one? Let's just stop for a minute or two, and then we'll move on. Um, Paul described two kinds of consciences. There's so much confusion about this. It could be helpful to, to talk about it. He described a strong conscience and a weak conscience. It would be a mistake to think that the first was a compliment and the second an insult. Neither one are either one. Um, They're just descriptors. A strong conscience is less sensitive. So it takes way more to set it off. It'd be like a smoke detector in your house that has a really high threshold. Like, you know, you, you, a strong conscience, you'd have to build like a forest fire right underneath it to set it off. And then a weak conscience just means a more sensitive conscience. Like you even think about lighting candles on a birthday cake and that smoke detector goes off at the end of the hall. That would be like the other. So you see, you've got a strong, less sensitive conscience that looks at gray and sees white. You've got a weak, more sensitive conscience that looks at gray and sees black. Now, Paul says in Romans 14, 23, that it just comes down to your conviction. It comes down to your faith. He says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So he's just saying we have to be sensitive to our conscience, but not just ours. He also says we need to be sensitive to the consciences of other people. Now, it would be worth just clarifying before we move on, and then we are going to move on. But to clarify what this does and does not mean, um, if, if you do something and I don't like it, you didn't stumble me. If you do something and it annoys me, it frustrates me, it irritates me, you did not stumble me. But if, if I do something that you don't have the freedom to do, and because I do it, because you see me do it, because you know I do it, you start to entertain it in your mind. And you start to rethink it, and you start to feel conflicted. Well, maybe I could, maybe I should, maybe I oughta. And then you do, and immediately you feel guilty. Immediately you feel regret. You know, you've got to, you feel like you've got to get right with God. You know, you feel unclean. Well, now I've stumbled you. So those are two completely different things. And I think it is important to understand the difference. 
to, to not stumble people does not mean allowing an intolerant minority to hijack the culture of an entire church. But it does mean that we love each other and we make it easier for the other person to follow Christ and to be sensitive to their conscience and not harder for them to follow Christ to be sensitive to their conscience. Now, when you look at this particular temptation, this all-you-can-eat buffet, doesn't it seem like a small thing? Why not cheat a little to get ahead, right? Everybody else does. Doesn't it seem that way in life, sports, academics, uh, even work? And these guys certainly could have felt that way. But, you know, it says that Daniel purposed in his heart in verse 8. He had a purposeful heart. He had a heartfelt purpose. What is yours? You know what I'm discovering is that in life, if, if our purpose is to do, if it's to win, if our purpose is to accomplish things and accumulate things and achieve things, we're going to be way more tempted to cut corners. But if our purpose is not first to do, but instead first to be, to be a man or woman of faith, to be godly, to be you know, Christ-like, to become the kind of person that God wants us to become, we're going to be way less tempted to cut corners. And you know, the other thing I've noticed is that doers rarely get around to being the lies we tell ourselves. As soon as I get that promotion, I'm going to address these areas of my life that aren't right. You know, as soon as I, as soon as I upgrade from this house to that house, as soon as I get X amount put away in the bank, as soon as I do this, as soon as I do that, then I'm going to focus on my personal growth and my spiritual growth. They don't ever get around to it. But then over here, people who focus first on being, people who care about character, people who care about the relationship with God and spiritual growth, more often than not, they do get around to doing. So, so much better to put being first, right? Well, so with that in mind, check this out. I love that Daniel didn't just refuse to eat and he didn't just give up when the chief eunuch said he couldn't help him. Instead, he suggested an alternative to the steward. You know that saying, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. That is so true. Anyone can point out a problem, and most people do. But few will offer a solution, and even fewer will take ownership of it. Man, this is true everywhere. You know where it's true? Which you might not think it's true? Right here at church. I'm telling you, 18 years I led the church I founded, Calvary Chapel, Austin, Texas. If I had a dollar for every time someone came to me at the front or in the lobby or whatever to tell me what was wrong... Man, I'd never have to work another day in my life. People always had an idea what was wrong. They always had an idea about what needed to be fixed. But they rarely had an idea about how to fix it. And if that really small sliver of that pie chart, the people that had an idea how to fix it, there was a very small number of those that had any intention of being a part of it. It was something for me to do. It was something for my family to do. It was something for my staff to do. We were going to do it. We were going to pay for it. We were going to pray about it. It was all on us. Well, gosh, when you think about that, it is true everywhere. So if you want to excel, if you want to excel at church, if you want to excel at work, if you want to excel at home, be a problem solver, not just a problem spotter. Now, you know, this diet that they went on was a vegetarian diet, right? I've discovered there are two kinds of people in this world. There are veggie lovers and veggie haters. I am a veggie lover. Any other veggie lovers here? Yeah? And where are the veggie haters? Yeah, see, there are veggie haters here, but you can't lift your arm up because you're missing nutrients. You don't have the physical <laughs> strength or stamina to respond to the survey. Um, you know, I mean, I am, I am such a veggie lover that I love some veggies that other veggie lovers hate. Did you follow that? Let me throw out some favorites and see who's down. 
Like, who's down with the artichoke hearts? Come on now. So good. So good. What about Brussels sprouts? Yeah, see, I thought I might be pushing it a little bit. I think I did lose a hand or two. Let's see if I can lose some more. Um, something else that a vegetarian might eat. Maybe hominy. Anybody down with the hominy? Yeah, come on. I can tolerate the hominy. Nothing wrong with a little hominy. How about the lima beans? A little butter, a little salt never hurt. Oh, so good. So good. But check this out. Even though I love vegetables, no one has ever confused me with a vegetarian. I love me some meat. In fact, when we lived in Austin, we had a favorite barbecue restaurant, Pokey Joe's Smokehouse. And they had my favorite all-time restaurant t-shirt. You know what it said? It said, vegetarian is Indian for can't hunt. (laughs) That's how they roll in Texas. I've got another pastor friend who says, if God didn't mean for us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of steak. (laughs) I think that's a philosophy to live by. But the point is that, you know, the vegetarian diet made sense for them for the reasons that we've talked about. This isn't. This isn't teaching us that we should all be vegetarians or that we shouldn't be vegetarians. That's not the point. So we've seen Daniel at the food court in a food fight and finally with food for thought. Verse 15. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, This is like an eating competition of sorts, right? Whoever thought that the day would come when you could turn on the TV and watch competitive eating? Isn't that weird? You could turn on ESPN and they're playing cards. Like when did a table game become a sport? I don't know. But when did eating become a sport? I totally don't know. I totally don't get it. But if you ever have seen anything about competitive eating, you probably know the name Joey Chestnut. I mean, Joey Chestnut is hands down the best known competitive eater in the world. And in case you don't take this seriously, Joey is banking $200,000 a year shoving hot dogs and hot wings down his throat. Now, if you had known when you were a kid that you could make 200 grand a year eating like a teenager, would it have changed your life? Would it have changed your educational plan? I mean, skip college would have changed your career choice. Heck, I might've just stayed at the all you can eat pizza buffet and built up my skills and had a whole different career. Who knows? But so these guys had the vegetarian diet and they won the eating competition. Before you run the Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, wherever it is you like to get your produce, notice the fine print. It says these guys were fatter in flesh. I'm no marketing genius, but I'm pretty sure fatter in flesh is the wrong way to sell your diet. Usually I'm dieting as I am right now because I need to lose some flesh, not because I need to gain it. But this obviously has less to do with one's gut and more to do with one's God. So listen. Let's bring it in for a second. From a purely pragmatic standpoint, life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. Let me say it again. Life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. So what part of your life isn't working? And in what way is that part of your life out of alignment with God? Some years ago, my sister, when I was pastoring in Austin, my sister lived there for a few years. And she had a van that she was having trouble with. As she described it to me, I told her, well, it sounds to me like you need a front end alignment. And she's like, well, will you come with me to you know, the auto shop and tell them? I'm like, sure. So we go and she explains it and they tell her, well, it sounds like you need a front end alignment. 
And then they go to pull her up in the computer, and they're like, oh, yeah, you were just here a few months ago, and we told you when you were here that you needed a front-end alignment. So here's what's never happened anywhere to anyone in the history of driving. No one with a car out of alignment has ever been driving down the road, hit a pothole, boom. Hey, we're back in alignment. Like, I don't know what happened, but nobody's ever just driven their car back into alignment. And listen, nobody just lives their life back into alignment either. If we're going to realign ourselves with God, it's got to be intentional. It's got to be deliberate. We've got to be proactive about it. You know, again, what part of your life is out of alignment with God? Read the Bible and see what the Bible says about that part of your life. Pray and ask God to speak to you about that part of your life. Find people around you who have mastered that part of their lives and ask them for their input and for their advice and for their prayers. Picking it up in verse 18, at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, gosh, it was test time. Think of all the tests we've taken in our lives. The pop quizzes, the midterms, the finals. We had written tests. We had oral tests. We had fill-in-the-blank tests, multiple choice tests, true-false tests. I mean, who here has PTSD when you hear the words, now take out your Scantron form and number two pencil? Like, you're going to have nightmares tonight. You're welcome for that, by the way. So it's three years later, and these guys are going to have to take an oral exam. Before Nebuchadnezzar himself, no less. How scary was that? But they aced the test. And I love how in verse 21 it says that Daniel continued. And here's the crazy thing. If we continued reading Daniel, we would discover that the story does not end here. Does not end with this test, with this temptation in the food court. For Daniel's friends, there would be a fiery furnace in chapter 3. And for Daniel, there would be a lion's den in chapter 6. In many ways, the tests only get harder. I always laugh when people talk about religion, about Christianity in particular, as if it were some sort of crutch. Often we joke, it's not a crutch, it's the whole hospital, man. It's the triage, it's the ER, it's, and it is. It is all of those things. But make no mistake about it, following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. It takes courage to follow Christ, particularly in this day and age. And it was going to take courage for these guys, no doubt. The crazy thing about it is this. Do you think that if they hadn't passed the test in the food court, that his friends ever would have been ready for the test in the fiery furnace? Do you think that if Daniel hadn't passed the test in the food court, that he ever would have been ready for the test in the lion's den? Do you think that when they were in the, the fiery furnace, or when he was in the lion's den, that they thought to themselves, thank God for the food court, because that's where I learned that God's got me, no matter what, that I can trust him, no matter what, that he's going to see me through, no matter what. If in your life you are in the food court right now, and you're hating life, and you're wondering, God, where are you? You know, I've been abducted and taken from Judah to Babylon, and I'm in this, I'm in this place where I'm being tested, and I don't know what's going to happen if I don't win this little competition. For all I know, they're going to kill me. I, I have no idea. You've abandoned me and left me to die. 
You know, are you feeling like that in some part of your life? So listen, if you knew, if you knew that down the road for you was a fiery furnace or a lion's den and that you were going to get through that because you got through this. If you knew that you were going to be able to handle that because you and God together handle this, could you thank God for this? Could you thank God tonight for the food court that you're in? Could you come to see the food court that you're in as a mercy? Like, God, this is a mercy that you would let me go through this. Changes our perspective, doesn't it? And even in terms of seeing this as temptation, where they might have caved in and sinned, it would have been so easy to be like, it's just a little sin. Do you ever say that to yourself or to others? It's not a big deal. It's just a little sin. It's not a big sin. It's just a little tiny thing. It's not a big, huge thing. Just a little nothing. You ever try to rationalize like that? So here's the thing. You might think you know what I'm going to say, but you don't. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say that everyone who compromises in small things goes on to compromise in big things. That wouldn't be true. That isn't always the case. Here's what I am going to say. Everyone who compromises in a big thing, compromised in a small thing first. I know it. You know it. My greatest failures, and there have been many, were preceded by smaller failures. Your greatest failures, and there have probably been a few, were preceded by smaller failures. So you know what this means? This means that the little stuff matters. Or maybe, maybe we should scratch that and we should say this. Maybe what we should say is, there is no little stuff. Everything is big. Everything. So it's in the midst of what you're going through right now. It's in your food court that your attitudes are being developed, your habits are being formed. The decisions that you're making right now, rather than having nothing to do with the decisions that you'll make later, they have everything to do with the decisions that you'll make later. And again, it says that Daniel continued. Dan the man, he was going to outlast Nebuchadnezzar. He was going to outlast the Babylonian Empire. Um, Three times in the book of Daniel, he's called greatly beloved. Um, And Ezra, twice he's mentioned along with Noah and Job. Pretty heady company. And Jesus himself in both Matthew and Mark refers to Daniel as Daniel the prophet. So Daniel at the food court in a food fight with food for thought. Man, you talk about relocation stress. You talk about unwanted change. Daniel and his friends faced it. And it was so not fun, right? So not fun. And yet in the end, it was a God thing. When you go back later and read this chapter... You know what you're going to discover? You're going to discover that God's hands are all over it. I mean, all the way back in verse 2, it says the Lord gave. In verse 9, it says God brought. In verse 17, it says God gave. God didn't just show up at the end. He was there throughout. So what I want to challenge you to do right now in the food court is I want you to look around. Do you see God's fingerprints on the napkin dispenser on the table in front of you? Do you see his fingerprints on the flatware, the place setting? You see his fingerprints on the chair back. You see his fingerprints on the light switch and on the door handle. God is all over your situation. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Tonight, you can acknowledge his presence. You can place your faith and your trust in him and that he's got everything under control. He's got you. God's got you. I'm going to say a prayer. Miranda's going to come back up and we'll do one last worship song together before we turn it back over to Pastor Chris. Father, thank you for answering our prayers, meeting us here tonight. And 
whether we were singing songs or praying prayers or studying your word, Lord, you've been, you've been right here by our side and so grateful. And I pray that, Lord, we would just have a heart that wants to draw near to you tonight, to respond to you and to the ways that you have spoken to us. Lord, maybe this song will be just the perfect song for us as we recognize just how good you are and just how fully we can trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.